Welcome to another edition of the KTH 910 AM Interview of the Week here on the Guadalupe Radio Network in North Texas. I'm Dave Palmer. Diane Xavier is running the board. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Uh, this is a program where we talk about local Catholic news and events. And uh, one of the great blessings that I have had over the years is when uh, local priests will come in and spend, and also uh, women religious as well, or deacons, and spend some time with me, get a tour, and uh, sit down and uh, let us kind of learn about their life. And I recently was invited to go to Mass over at St. Thomas Aquinas for their Wednesday noon Mass by uh, my dear friends Bill and Patricia Shirk. And they said, you got to meet this new priest there, Father Luke Turner. And so not only did I meet him, but we went to lunch after Mass and I got to sit next to him and uh, heard his story. And I told him, Father, we've got to do an interview because I've never heard a story like his before. And so uh, Father Luke Turner is a Benedictine monk. Uh, he is currently serving as parochial vicar of St. Thomas Aquinas Parish in Dallas. And he is right here in studio. So, Father, thanks for being here. Good to see you. Hey, good morning. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so uh, fascinating story. Let's get right to it. Um, tell me about your upbringing, uh, where you grew up, what kind of a family life you had. Was it a, a, a religious household or, or tell us, start, let's start with that. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm uh, one of three and um, mixed marriage. My father was not Catholic. Um, my mother was, came from a very German Catholic family. She did. And um, my father was with the Santa Fe Railroad for 35 years, born in Concordia, Kansas, up close to the Nebraska border. And my brother, who's five years older than I am, kind of experienced more of this than I did, just this constant moving around as my father uh, was kind of growing in his career with the railroad. And uh, we did move um, from Concordia to Wichita Newton, Wichita again. And then when I was in grade school, moved to Kansas City. Um, and that's really, I think, where I count most of my faith formation um, in growing up with the faith. Well, my father was not Catholic. Um, I think as in the day, they got married in the church. He signed the paperwork that we would be raised Catholic. And he was... Um, I wouldn't say that he was adamant, but he was very supportive of my of my mom's efforts and, and the family, really, in in terms of of us growing up, and um, yeah, and I I think from little on um, that was just an important part. There was something I think from little on that um, mom uh, I think taught us two things: our faith was very important, uh, that German work ethic, working mm-hmm. around the house, um, and then our faith. You know, she uh, she played the organ. Uh, she taught us how to pray. You know, we did this as a family. I wouldn't say that we were overly religious. I think we were, I, I think our family like pretty much mirrored, um, Catholic families at the time. And, uh, you know, I really didn't probably go to daily mass much, but, um, certainly Sundays was, you know, or, or even Saturday evening vigil mass. Um, there was no question that we went to Mass every week and the faith and, and prayers were a part of our daily life. And at some point, pretty early in your life, I think as a teenager, you decide you're going to seminary, right? A Benedictine seminary. Well, uh, that was actually run, that's kind of the funny thing is, I, for whatever reason, I always wanted to be a missionary. And so diocesan priesthood never appealed to me. The, di- the archdiocese that I grew up in Kansas City had a prep seminary, high school seminary, yeah. which I went to. For high school, but I never, I think probably much to the chagrin of the administration and the, and the priest there on the faculty, I never had a desire to be a diocesan priest. I don't know what it was. Um, I just simply, I think because of, you know, the movies of our time, you mm-hmm. know, the going my way, bells of St. Mary's, the singing nun, you know, seeing these religious, um, in far off lands or something about that that just really pulled on my heartstrings and, um, and created a desire in me to want to serve God in that case. And I think, as I've told you before, uh, or as I tell my story, you know, in the day, of course, it was 
pre-internet, pre, uh, you know, so how do you find out about religious orders? You look in the back of Catholic Digest, right? Mm-hmm. They have all these ads, and I would, you know, when the, when the new issue would come, I would look over the ads in the back. I'd look for the missionary orders, and you'd ride off to them and ask them for a, a packet of information. And, you know, getting that information back, you just, I dreamed of how I might serve the Lord in Africa or South America or something yeah. like that, all the while going to, to Savior the World. It was funny. One day, my mom, I don't know, um, just kind of out of curiosity, said, well, you know, there's there's an abbey. There's a, Benedict, a group of Benedictine monks in Atchison, Kansas. And I didn't really know, which is about an hour north of Kansas City. So I took the bus up there, and there was just something about seeing a 100 monks in that beautiful abbey church chanting and being able to talk to them, being able to interact with them, that just really caught my heart. I think it was the fact that I could touch and feel them and, and, inter- and talk to them. Uh-huh. You know, it, was, it, it, it made... Um, kind of my dream come alive as opposed uh, like a packet of information could not. Um, yeah, you yeah, could of actually course. See yeah, them. And they had a mission in Brazil, which I think maybe fed a little bit of my um, missionary um, interest. Which is interesting because you're going to end up traveling a whole lot in your life, but not necessarily as a monk, uh, which we'll get to that part of the story uh, here in just a moment. So uh, so you, you joined the seminary, right? I did. So yeah. I entered the I entered St. Benedict's Abbey after I graduated from high school at 19. So I was a student at Benedictine College, um, Spanish and English major my freshman year, my sp- uh, fall semester, my uh, sophomore year. And then I moved into the Abbey the spring semester of my sophomore year of college. I lived in the in the dorms prior to that with another gentleman, our father Daniel McCarthy, who's a confrere of mine at the Abbey. He works in Rome at the Sant'Anselmo teaching, um, and so I entered at nineteen, received the name of Luke with three other novices. So there was a total of four of us. I happened to be the youngest one at the time, and I think ultimately that had an impact on um, the discernment of my vocation. We all got along well, despite our different backgrounds or different ages. But there was something about hearing them talk about their lives before they came to the Abbey mm-hmm. that fascinated me and I think caused me to question my own vocation. Not whether I had a vocation, but whether I was ready to make the commitment at that age. Yeah. So you were, eventually you're going to leave. Uh, and that was the beginning of you just thinking, I don't know if this is right for me. So how long were you there? And ultimately, what was the deciding factor to say, you know what, this isn't right for me right now? Yeah, it was, I, I was there three years, and um, my younger sister, who's now in Spain, um, has married a native and has been there for 40 years. Linda and I were very, very close growing up, and um, I think I built such an expectation with my parents about my vocation. They gave me no reason to, but whatever, you know, young people um, have vivid imaginations, and I just anticipated they might be really angry with me for leaving mm-hmm. religious life. And so I remember I shared my uh, concern or my questioning my desire for my vocation at that age with my sister. And, you know, she reminded me wisdom of young people. You know, you, you've got to be happy. You know, you've got to be happy. You, yeah. you can live your whole life making other people happy. And so that's when I just had the freedom that says, you know what? For me to be happy, it's not in this place at this time. Yeah. So How I told they, my parents. Did, did they take the news okay or were they It upset? was tough. Yeah. It was tough. It was tough, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and obviously here you are a Benedictine monk. And so, uh, <laughs> eventually you do, uh, you know, fulfill, I guess what they had hoped for originally. I don't know if they ever got to see it, but anyways, let's move on to the next stage. So you leave and all of a sudden you're thrown out into the world and you make quite a, a successful businessman of yourself over the years. So what was your, you know, what did you do next? And what, what, what you, what was your career like as a, uh, a lame, a lay person? Yeah, uh, you know, rather than a, yeah. a, a monk. Yeah, sure. Fast forward, I um, I moved to Kansas City, enrolled in Rockhurst University, which is a Jesuit university, very well known for their school of business. 
I thought, you know, I don't know if I'll ever go back to the Abbey, so I want something that will prepare me for a career in the world. So I went from a Spanish-English major to a finance marketing degree, was recruited by Hallmark Cards, which their homegrown Kansas City Corporation and worked in retail store development, um, did that. They had signed, Hallmark had signed national agreements with two major drug companies. And so I moved to Omaha, Nebraska to support the expansion of the brand across Nebraska and Western Iowa. Uh, ultimately, um, I kind of got tired of that. Somebody said, you should get into credit cards. I said, I don't know anything about credit cards. And they said, we don't have to. You just jump into this <laughs> management trainee program. So I yeah. did. And that's where I really credit this whole German work ethic that I, that was instilled in me uh, early on because I worked really hard. I had to really, you know, come to find out I really had a desire. The position that I had was really customer facing and, and I'm pretty gregarious and, and really enjoy being around people. And so I worked hard, moved up the ladder quickly to the point where within about four or five years, I was managing all of our customer facing functions. Um, and then in, um, the early nineties, both MasterCard and Visa, um, recruited me. I interviewed with both organizations. I just happened to like the guys at MasterCard better, the people that I interviewed with. They quickly moved me to Chicago. I worked in the U.S. region for a couple of years, and that's where the missionary uh, desire still on my heart um, kind of weighed in on me, and I found out that uh, there was a need for people with my uh, specific expertise in credit cards, which is on the acquiring side of the business, the, the merchant side of the business, to work <clears throat> to work in Latin America. So I quickly moved from, hmm. didn't take much convincing in January, uh, for, to move from Chicago to Miami, Florida with all the snow in Chicago. Interesting that you had decided to, to minor in Spanish, right, when you were in college, and so that came in handy. It really did. Yeah. And the, the Cuban-American that interviewed me said, you know, you know the credit card business really well. You're Spanish, but we can fix that. <laughs> so they sent me to uh, Argentina for a summer, and so I worked in the MasterCard office there while taking uh, some business courses in, in Spanish. And, of course, being in the environment where you're forced to speak the language helped a great deal. So I did that. Um, all the while, um, as you can imagine, a young person, you give them responsibility, you give them a career, you give them money, and it's not hard for their priorities in life to change. Yeah. And my focus quickly became on what my title was, how much I was making, what I could buy with my money. My faith was always there, but it seemed to be less of a priority over time. Uh, I spent eight years in Latin America, moved to New York at headquarters, um, and then moved to Dallas. And that's really here in Dallas in 04 to 08 is really where I credit the seed of my vocation really being planted and starting to blossom again. I was a member of the Holy Trinity Catholic Church. And um, coincidentally, the Holy Spirit probably at work on one Sunday, a gentleman, a retired Bank of America exec, tapped me on the shoulder. Hey, young man, we need some more volunteers in the St. Vincent de Paul Center. And I was I was happy to respond or yeah, to, to respond to the invitation. And I really, really, I just, I, I was just amazed at how much satisfaction I got out of helping those who needed help. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so I just, I had stayed in touch with the monks in, 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 uh, Atchison, but this kind of gave me a reawakening. My faith, you know, became on fire. My faith meant something different to me. It, it started to move up in prioritization, um, and meant something different to me. About that time, MasterCard said, we need you to, to uh, move to Atlanta. And I really didn't want to. I'd built a house here in Dallas and just really enjoyed my life, my, my kind of the balance of work and, and, uh, and pleasure. And, uh, but anyway, they came back a year later and said, uh, it's Atlanta or else. And so I said, okay, okay, I'll move over there. But by that time, my faith had really taken a stronghold on my heart. And so I belonged to a parish in uh, a suburb of Atlanta, Alpharetta, St. Bridget. And I went to register at the parish and to, volunteer and they said well you know if you're a volunteer in our parish that requires you to spend an hour before the blessed sacrament 
They had a beautiful 24 by 7 Blessed Sacrament Chapel. And um, so Friday nights at 9 o'clock was... Mm. Was my time. Oh, what a great policy to, to say that you, you need to spend time in front of the Lord if you're going to yeah. work in the parish. That's great. Uh, that was kind of the, the sea, the sealant, right? I mean, that, that's what. That was really the really fertilizer, see, see, right? Yeah, yeah, sealed the deal of, uh, boy. So how, so what happened, uh, it, during this time? Obviously, this was a very, you know, important part yeah. of your vocational call back to, to, to religious life. Uh, uh, well, what exactly, how did the Lord speak to you during that time? Yeah, um, I was a Vatican II baby, and so I'll be honest with you, when they said adoration, I quickly agreed. And I'm a firm believer that our, you know, our works have to be grounded in our prayer life and our encounters with Jesus Christ. And so that encounter in the Blessed Sacrament was just really um, critical in how I continued to discern my vocation and how I would serve the Lord. Um, but uh, to be honest with you, I'd go there on Friday nights, and I didn't really know what to do for a long time. I would take prayer books. I, I, I think I... Uh, would pray the rosary and different things, but it was really over time I really realized that, that was really a critical time for me, not only to pray, but more importantly to listen. Yeah. And I, I literally heard, I mean, to this day, if I were, as I recount the story, it was, it was practically that I heard God speaking to me aloud saying, I'm waiting for you. Mm. And I, I was just really, I, I, I physically looked around the chapel thinking, you know, he's, he, he's here present. He's talking to somebody and it, wondering if it was, if that conversation was with me. Uh, still not convinced. Uh, I probably stayed on for another year mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in Atlanta, um, just discerning really what that meant. And in the meantime, I'd reached out to St. Benedict's Abbey in a different way than I had previously. Um, a good friend of mine's the business manager, and I had called Father Maurice and said, have you taken your vacation yet this year? He said, no. I said, why don't you come down to Atlanta? And uh, so I invited him down. And, and, you know, being able to talk to him about these feelings, these thoughts that I had, um, and he, he said, you know, what can I do? And I said, well, I'd kind of like to come up for a visit. And he was funny. He said, do you want to come up for a visit visit or a vocation visit? And I said, does it matter? <laughs> yeah. And he said, it does. And so I said, uh, how about a vocation visit? And, uh, so he said, fine. And so within a week or two, he actually called me before, as we had set the date a month or two later, he said, Hey, just by the way, I talked to Abbott Barnabas and he said, I told him of your upcoming visit. And I said, you know, if Jeff, which is my baptismal name, has a desire to come back to the Abbey, would you accept him? Because it had been several years. And uh, Abbot Barnabas said yes. And so, mm. um, yeah, so that was kind of the, the beginnings of my return. Uh, and so really by the fall of 2010, I had decided that's what I wanted to do. Mm. And so I went out and spent Thanksgiving with my mom. And, uh, yeah, told, told her. <laughs> and so little did I know uh, was that your she's dad, a, dad still alive? My, yeah. No, my father passed of colon cancer in two, 2007. Okay, okay. So she's out uh, in uh, Southern California. And uh, she revealed to me then that um, in, in kind of a tearful acceptance of my news that she'd been on her knees praying every day for oh, my vocation. Oh, wow, wow. So, like St. Like, like Monica praying exactly. for her son. But you were not never really a wayward son. You were just... Uh, uh, you know, getting the experience out in the world. So uh, did the three years of seminary count at that point, or did you have to start over, go through the whole seminary formation, or what was uh, what, Yeah, I, I think that's that. probably a good dose or a good lesson in humility, right? So no, you start from the from the bottom rung all over yeah, again. Yeah, And, um, you know, I, I suppose some people, I, for whatever reason, it didn't really bother me. I think I was just so interested in, there was a, a really a heartfelt joy in, um, not only in the satisfaction of the career that I had had, but the fact that um, I was really responding to this call that maybe I'd had had been planted years ago, um, and then I was responding to. And I'll be honest with you, I, I 
I've told several people this when I came back. I think I lamented the fact for a long time that I had waited so long to come back mm-hmm. and thinking that, wow, I'd really delayed God's invitation to me. And they said, no, Luke, you were out in the world for the period of time yeah. that you were supposed to be out there. You returned when you were supposed to. So that gave me a lot of comfort saying, you know, and to this day, um, you know, my professional background works Oh yeah, uh, wonders with me with my um, well. I was back in Atchison, being on the Council of Seniors, being on the Abbey Investment Committee, and then the congregation um, doing finance work. I worked for the Abbott Primate in Rome on the on the Abbott Primate's Finance Council. So my MBA, my finance background, comes in still handy to this day. Yeah. So you were ordained a priest. What year? Two thousand nineteen, June twenty nine. Oh, wow. So it's kind very, of a funny very, story. Very yeah. French. Yeah. Feast of Saint Peter and Paul. So my great grandparents that came from Germany established helped establish a parish in central Kansas, Saint Peter and Paul. And so my mom said, when you're ordained a priest, you will be ordained on the feast of, on the solemnity of St. Peter and Paul. Oh, so, right. oh, wow. so it's a beautiful thing. And so most of your priestly life has been during a pandemic, hasn't it? Uh, I mean, really, you're, you're June of 19, and then within nine months, the world gets uh, really yeah. crazy. So how, how have these, uh, uh, a little over three years, 1920, yeah, three years of being a priest, Ben, uh, you've, you've, and I want to get to the, the, how, why you're here in the Dallas Diocese, uh, oh, sure, sure. next, but most of it, like you say, was, was, was at the college in Kansas. Yeah, so and also prior said, to, prior going off to seminary, I did teach in the school of business in the college. So I expected when I was ordained, I, ret- I would return after seminary studies and being ordained to priesthood. Um, uh, but the abbot, of course, um, as we take a vow of obedience and, so the dean of students and one of the other monks approached the abbot and said, we really need somebody to kind of kind of get our college ministry program back in order and so forth. So I actually headed up our college ministry program at Benedictine College. So you're right, in, 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 in uh, the time of pandemic, the students going through all this stuff, um, I, it was really a grace in many ways to be able to lead that group, but also to accompany the students and their parents and the, and the whole campus in how, you know, how we, how we respond, um, you know, through our faith and our mm-hmm. daily actions to that. And then um, slowly kind of work my way back into the school of business. So Yeah, there's not many priests or monks that have your kind of, you know, real life experience in the business world and travel and, uh, you know, cor- corporate America. So, I, yeah, like you say that, that comes in very handy. So uh, I guess, and by the way, uh, we're speaking to Father Luke Turner. He's a Benedictine monk. He's parochial vicar right now at St. Thomas Aquinas Parish in Dallas under uh, Father John LeBone, the pastor. And big school there as well. So I guess the question people might be wondering is, why is a Benedictine monk serving as a parochial vicar in the Dallas Diocese? So how how did that come about? Holy Spirit always works in strange ways. The plan was always to bring mom to Atchison. And it's funny, about um, a year and a half ago, I was out as I go out to visit her a couple times a year. We were at the doctor's office, and um, we were laughing about moving to Atchison. And the doctor said, gosh, Father Luke, you know, your mother, is in, she's in great health. God, you know, thank God. Um, and she's out walking two, two and a half miles a day. But he said, you know, being in Kansas winter, um, you know, you're going to have to close her up part of the year and so forth. And I just didn't think that was really the lifestyle I wanted for mom. And um, so I quickly began thinking about what plan B looked like. And having a sister here and, and my brother, um, we thought, you know, nice to have family around. And so I asked for and received permission from my abbot. And then um, consequently with the, the Diocese of Dallas, invited to serve here in the diocese. Um, and you moved her here? Or? She's in the process of being moved here. Okay. So that'll be really nice for us to be close and then to have my brother and sister and their families close by yeah. as well. So now, uh, Procure Vicar at St. Thomas Aquinas. And uh, how's that going? Uh, is it, you know, what, what's, a, what's a day in the life like of, uh, you know, you as Procure Vicar there? 
You know, I, I love it. I'll be honest with you, but it's not monastic life. You know, and it's funny when, when, uh, our life takes, uh, uh, makes changes the way that has on mine. It's funny what we think about prior to the change and what kind of strikes us afterwards. I think maybe a couple things. One is I never gave it a thought about what my prayer life would look like. Yeah. Uh, once I got to St. Thomas, you know, we come to man to come to chapel six times a day in Atchison. And we respond to a bell, and suddenly here I'm at St. Thomas Aquinas, and yeah. I've got to develop my own prayer life. Yeah, so the important yeah. thing, food, you know, in the, on the monastery, the you know meals are really special. We get together. We may not talk during most of the meals, but you're still there in in community with your brothers, and so you know you kind of fend for yourself. And then third, you know, just the the network of alumni, students, uh, people in the Kansas City and Atchison area, good friends, and so. Uh, but the people I, I have to say at St. Thomas have just been incredibly welcoming, incredibly warm. I love the fact that there's a school there. Um, I don't have my own kids. And so I, you know, family life is really important to me as I experience it through my priesthood. And so being able to interact and minister to the, to the kids in the grade school, uh, in the, yeah, in the, in the grade school and in, in the, in the parishioners, I, I couldn't be happier. Mm-hmm. So long term, uh, do you think eventually you go back? Uh, you know, d- depending on your mom's health and her her situation, is that uh, kind of the plan? But uh, or kind of taking it year to year? Because uh, yeah, none so, of us know what's going to be happening tomorrow, much less five years yeah. from now. But uh, do you think eventually you'll go back to community? Yeah, you know, Benedictine's one of the vows that we take. Um, our vows are based on Saint Benedict, of course, and before the Evangelical Councils in the in the Middle Ages. So uh, my vow is stability, which Benedict all Benedictines take. I'm vowed to Saint Benedict's Abbey. So it's really a family there. So you enter there and you die there. And when you die, we carry your body out back and bury in the monastic cemetery. So that's, that's the vow that I've made. And that's what I look forward to. That's, I, I chose that vocation. But of course, when you have a, an 86 year old mother or soon to be 86 year old mother, you know, she comes here, you know, we'll see, you know, what that looks like. And mm-hmm. uh, we pray for the, for the consideration of the abbot and the bishop that, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that, that really struck me about your story is the uniqueness of, uh, you know, seminary, you know, world of business and then back to seminary. It's, it's really a, a, a fascinating story. Do you, do you get to tell the story at the parish or do most people know your background or, uh, yeah, I've shared it parts formally? And piece, yeah, I've shared parts and pieces with the, with the parish, uh, faithful at large. Um, usually it's, it's kind of a more of an intimate story and, and there's lots of details and so forth. So, um, you kind of pick and choose. There's all kinds of things along how my house sold and my own diagnosis with colon cancer and how that affects, you know, just all kind. you know, so it can, it can be a long story. So I choose to tell parts and pieces of it, uh, in different contexts. We have a very active youth, young people's, uh, young adult group at, at St. Thomas. And so I've been able to share a big part of it with them. And the reason that I do that is just simply, um, you do it in terms of young people really wrestle with discernment of their own vocation. What yeah. does it look like? How do I know what God wants me to do? What does my prayer life look like? And so you, you can kind of uh, pull out parts of my life, my vocation story, and apply it to these various topics, which is really a gift for me to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, you can certainly share this uh, interview with anybody who's interested. They'll at least get the 25-minute version. And, yeah. uh, you know, of course, and that they have follow-up questions. Like you said, we weren't able to touch uh, on a lot of the details. Yeah. Uh, but thank you for, for sharing it with us. It's a, it's a fa- fabulous story. And I do want to thank, again, Patricia and Bill Shirk for uh, introducing me. I, I still remember the phone conversation with Patricia where she's like, have you heard of Father Luke Turner? No. <laughs> You got to meet him. And uh, it was good to, to share that, that meal with you. So thanks to them. I know they're listening as well. 
uh, and uh, uh, God bless you, and th- thanks for following God's call and uh, a very interesting life you've lived. Hey, thanks for the invitation and for being able to share that story with you. Yeah, thank you. Father Luke Turner over at St. Thomas Aquinas, a great homilist, by the way. Uh, I was very impressed, uh, very succinct, and gets right to the point. And uh, if you ever get out to St. Thomas Aquinas for any of the Mass, of course, Father John and uh, Deacon Ken and all the the, the other folks there at the, at the, the parish as well, uh, over at Kenwood in the beautiful lake, uh, kind of a White Rock uh, uh, Lake area of Dallas. This has been the KTH 910 AM interview of the week. And if you have any suggestions for other interviews, I'm always uh, looking for good stories, good, you know, of any sort. If it's local and Catholic, it fits this uh, show. Uh, you can email me directly, Dave Palmer at grnonline.com. Have a great rest of your weekend. God bless you. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the KTH 910 AM Interview of the Week here on uh, the Guadalupe Radio Network, KTH here in North Texas. Uh, glad you are with us. And if you're like me, you love movies and you love saints. You love our Catholic faith. And uh, you're going to be delighted in this interview because uh, I'm speaking the, to the director and producer of a movie I'm sure you've heard about because there's been a lot of buzz on Catholic radio. It's about uh, St. Mother Teresa. It's called Mother Teresa, No Greater Love. And the director and producer is David Naglieri. And uh, it's going to be coming out on a two-day initial release, October 3rd and 4th, Monday and Tuesday. We want everybody to get out there and see it. And uh, I think if it's successful, then they may have an additional run. But we uh, really want uh, to encourage you. Of course, everybody loves Mother Teresa. So uh, David Negleri, uh, director and producer of Mother Teresa, No Greater Love, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. Great to be with you. Yeah, I know I have your bio, but I'd rather you, if we could, just kind of explain a little bit about your background. I, I know you're a father because I know you told me before we started recording that you're there with your two, two young children taking care of yeah. them. So God bless <laughs> you for that. Uh, professionally you. and personally, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I work for the Knights of Columbus. Very blessed to, to oversee film production for the Knights. Our headquarters are here in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, where we were founded back in 1882 by Father Michael McGivney. And the Knights of Columbus do many things, of course, as a, a charitable organization, um, an amends fraternal organ, Catholic organization. But uh, one of the things we've been, we've been doing uh, in, in the, my department is a lot of documentary films, a lot of video productions, uh, both to educate and enlighten our membership, but also the broader Catholic community and, and, uh, and, and the Catholic Church. Um, and to evangelize culture as well. So um, my background is I, I, I worked uh, for about five years up in Canada for Salt and Light te- Television, and there did a lot of te- uh, TV productions, including several documentaries. We produced documentaries uh, defending Pope Pius XII from uh, allegations that he was uh, not defending uh, Jews during the Holocaust. We did a documentary about Opus Dei when the Da Vinci Code came out, and, and a biography of Cardinal von Tuan, who was a great Vietnamese cardinal who spent many years under in prison under the communist regime there. So I developed a love and a passion for documentary filmmaking. And in 2009, I was hired by the Knights of Columbus to kind of bolster their video production unit. And uh, we produced many documentaries over the last 12, 13 years, including uh, several documentaries on John Paul II and his legacy, on uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, on St. Faustina and Divine Mercy Devotion, and then about a year ago, one of the most exciting projects um, that I've ever been involved in was when the Missioners of Charity went to Supreme Knight Patrick Kelly and said, would you make a film on Mother Teresa? 
uh, to celebrate her life as we commemorate the 25th anniversary of her death. And, and the Knights, of course, said yes. And, uh, and that's been a big, big project for me and our whole team this past year. Oh, yeah, that, that's exciting. Uh, MotherTeresaMovie.com is the website, MotherTeresaMovie.com. And so that that's interesting that they came to you. And did they kind of have an idea of like, hey, this is the part of Mother Teresa's life that we'd like to highlight? Or, uh, you know, of course, she had a, a full, very interesting life and did so much work. Uh, what, what's the, the focus of the, this particular film? Well, when Mother Teresa died uh, 25 years ago, the Missionaries of Charity went through a period of discernment uh, about potentially a film. And for a while, for a number of years, they were thinking about a Hollywood film. So they talked to some directors, screenwriters. I think they got to the point they actually had a screenplay, but they couldn't settle on the right actress, the right script, and nothing kind of came together where they felt a sense of peace. Um, and then they started pivoting to the possibility of a documentary. And, um, and they had watched some of the films that the Knights of Columbus had produced, in particular in 2016, we did a documentary, uh, John Paul II and the Fall of Communism, Liberating a Continent. And uh, the Missionaries of Charity really loved that film, in particular Father Brian Kowalczyk, and he's the postulator for the cause of Mother Teresa. And on top of that, the Missionaries of Charity and the Knights of Columbus have had a very long-standing relationship uh, going back 30 years. So Mother Teresa actually came and visited the Knights of Columbus in 1988, our headquarters, and spoke to employees. Uh, the Knights of Columbus would do a lot of printing work for the Missionaries of Charity, including printing their constitution that goes out to um, every single member of the Missionaries of Charity. And so there was already this kind of long-standing relationship of trust. And so they really wanted to make a film that would tell the story of Mother Teresa to new generations. Um, you know, the reality is you have a lot of young people graduating high school, graduating college, that have no living memory of Mother Teresa. And this woman was, you know, one of the great saints of, in the history of the church, an icon in, that, in the 20th century, um, someone who's just such an incredible witness of the gospel love of Jesus Christ with her mission to quench the thirst, thirst of Christ by going into the darkest holes in the world to serve the poorest of the poor. And, and so the film is aimed to be a biography of Mother Teresa, yes, to highlight who she is. But more than that, we wanted to also give witness to how Mother Teresa's legacy continues to live on through the example and the work of the missionaries of charity. There's more than, there's several thousand missionaries of charity serving in more than 140 countries and various apostolates, and they're doing just incredible work that's awe-inspiring. And so the film tells the story of Mother Teresa using dramatizations and interviews, historical narrative, but then there's also all of these little vignettes from Tijuana, Mexico, to the Amazon region in Brazil, to Nairobi, Kenya, to the Philippines, to Albania, where you're seeing the work, ongoing work of the missionaries of charity uh, to quench the thirst of Jesus, to, to give people their dignity, the most severely disabled, the poorest of the poor, the dying, the lepers. And, um, and these powerful images, I think, really convey who Mother Teresa was. Mm, interesting. The website again, MotherTeresaMovie.com, uh, MotherTeresaMovie.com. I'm speaking to David Naglieri, the director and producer of Mother Teresa, No Greater Love. And David, you know, I'm old enough to remember the, the, the moment that everybody found out that Mother Teresa had passed away, and you said 25 years ago. And I know you, you remember that it was really kind of overshadowed by the tragic death of Princess Diana, who I think died just 
just, uh, I don't know, a, a week or you know, a few days be before her, which I don't think Mother Teresa would have cared because she didn't need the fanfare. But in some sense, I think her death, do, do, do you remember that? Uh, 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 and, and perhaps all the more reason for something like this, because I don't think her death got the attention that perhaps it would have been nice to have had. Yeah, I do remember that. And I was born in 1980, so I was uh, 17 years old, must have been a junior <laughs> in high school. And I do remember, you know, Princess Diana death and this nonstop media coverage. And then you're right, it got a little bit maybe, I don't want to, use, you know, use the word lost in the shuffle, but I can, you know, put it that way. By the same token, I would say, you know, from the perspective of someone here in the United States like us, perhaps, and, and in terms of comparing the C- coverage on CNN or or the largest cable networks, news networks at the time. Yeah, there might have been a disproportion. But I think um, the funeral of Mother Teresa was a quite astonishing event that brought brought out uh, w- leaders around the world and just a huge turnout of the population of India, of Indians who, who really developed a tremendous love and respect for Mother Teresa, this great spiritual leader who really taught the Indian people, I think, a lot about the dignity of each human life. You know, there's a caste system in India. And so when she started working with the poorest of the poor and the dead and dying in the streets of Calcutta, it made no sense to them, you know, to treat, treat these people with the level of dignity that she did. So she had a very, so the funeral was quite an astonishing event. And then, of course, in the film, we chronicle the beatification, the canonization, the kind of ongoing, growing devotion to Mother Teresa that happened uh, in those ensuing years. But, uh, but I do think, you know, the film is important because it's easy to, to forget. And I think if you look at the history of, the, of our faith, it is, it is an oral faith, right? I mean, the, the first, those first apostles, they taught people about what they experienced about Jesus, who Jesus Christ was, the miracles that he performed. And ultimately, that is what gives birth to the New Testament and gives, and gives rise to our faith. So we, we're very much an oral testimony um, as a church, as a, as a people of faith. And so we have to be passing that baton of faith on to the next generation and telling our stories. And when you look at the generation we lived in um, post-World War II, um, in terms of the, on a global level, there's really not many better stories than this young Albanian nun who listened to the word of God in her heart and started an incredible movement, the Missionaries of Charity, that has made such a huge impact around the world. And, uh, and so I think for all those reasons, this is a really important film for, for this, this time. Yeah, and you know, I have a 17-year-old daughter who, uh, back when she was confirmed, chose uh, Mother Teresa as her confirmation saint, and so she clearly has uh, knowledge and, of her, but, you know, and you're, you're quite a bit younger than I am, but I'm just thinking about there, there isn't really anybody that I can think of in our culture today who is like Mother Teresa. You know, she was not just uh, known in the Catholic worlds, like even somebody like Mother Angelica, who of course has already passed away as well, was very well known, I think, in Catholic worlds, but the broader world, maybe not so much. But everybody knew who Mother Teresa was. Uh, you know, and, and I, I, like I say, I don't think there, I can't think of a person in the world today that had the same stature as she had uh, back when she was alive. And all the more reason to tell this story. Yeah, absolutely. She was uh, a force. She was an absolute force. Obviously, she emerges on the scene in 1979 when she's uh, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And she'd already become very famous because of Malcolm Muggeridge, of course, the famous British journalist who traveled to Calcutta and made the film and the book Something Beautiful for God. One of the interesting things in the film we explore is how much she did not seek publicity and how much she suffered the fame. 
Um, she would say that whenever there's a photograph of me, a soul gets released from purgatory. And for her, it was really a cross. Um, she didn't want Malcolm Uggridge to do the book and movie about her. She declined his request for an interview back in 1969. Malcolm Uggridge turns to a British cardinal and says, can you talk to somebody at the Vatican? Ultimately, the Vatican calls Mother Teresa and says, please do this interview. Tell the world what you're doing. Show the world what you're doing. Be a witness. And so she only accepts the interview with Malcolm Uggridge uh, because of the request from the Vatican. Um, then, so she really didn't want this fame, but ultimately I think she came to realize that this was uh, what God wanted from her and that she was willing to use the fame and the celebrity if it was going to help the poor. And I agree with you. I think she was a very remarkable woman and it's hard to find a comparable personality. And just a little, a little glimpse into her, I had a chance to meet the former mayor of San Francisco, Art Agnos, and his wife, Shirley, Sherry, who did work with Mother Teresa. They had a home for crack addicted uh, babies in San Francisco. And he told me this one anecdote. Mother Teresa was in San Francisco. It was a Sunday. It was 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And Mother Teresa was looking for a new home for the missionaries of charity. She thought she found one. Um, she had to fly out the next morning. So she, she told her driver, take me to the home of the mayor of San Francisco. She arrives there, knocks on the door 11 p.m., asks if she can come in. He's startled, but of course knows who she is and is just overwhelmed by the experience. She walks into the living room, proceeds to basically ask him for the deed and the property of this location. He gets in his car. He drives out there with her. Long story short, by the following morning, the mayor of San Francisco had found out the ownership rights and transferred the deed of ownership, and, and that became a location for the missionaries of charity. So mm. if you just think of that as story, who else can knock on the door of a mayor of a large city on the evening, on a Sunday evening, ask for property, and, and get it within 24 hours, right? <laughs> and so she, she could do that, and, and she did it not out of pride or ego trip. She did it to serve the poorest of the poor. And, um, and so just an incredible personality. And uh, we may never again have somebody quite like her. Yeah, that is for sure. Uh, the movie is called Mother Teresa, No Greater Love. And it is coming out uh, in theaters Monday, October 3rd and Tuesday, October 4th on a very limited release. Hopefully, if uh, people pack the theaters and uh, get out there and tell their friends about it and go, then it can have an additional run. But those, those are, that's the initial run. David Naglieri is the director and producer of the movie. And you can learn more about it and get your tickets at MotherTeresaMovie.com. Uh, tell us David about the two-day run um, from the the you know the perspective of marketing and uh, why two days and um, is it going to be a, a national release international or how many theaters are you going to be in? Yeah, so uh, we were exploring the best way to get this film out there. We want to present to as wide a public as possible, and so we're very grateful that Fathom Events Fathom is a event-based theatrical release where it's typically actually one day. So we're very excited that we're going to get two uh, to start with. And um, Fathom is owned by the three largest uh, movie chains in the theater owners in the, in the country. And so we're going to be in nearly, we're approaching 1,000 theaters on those two days, October 3rd and 4th. And if you go on our website, MotherTeresaMovie.com, MotherTeresaMovie.com, no H in Teresa, by the way. And you can click on tickets, put in your zip code, and hopefully there's a theater close by that's playing it. Um, and then, of course, there's the possibility that we could have additional dates added, and we'll know that after the October 3rd and 4th release. Um, and we're exploring, of course, getting the film out there later on with uh, TV and streaming and, and, and the various uh, digital platforms. But right now, we're really focused on a theatrical release. 
We'll be hopefully going to Canada as well in November. We're working on a Spanish language version that is going to be coming out in November as well, also with a limited theatrical release. And we'll have more information on that in the coming days on our website. And uh, we actually also are doing a theatrical release in Brazil mm. uh, in November. Um, the film does chronicle quite a bit the great work they're doing in Brazil. As I mentioned earlier, we went into the Amazon region where the, the missionaries of Cherokee is really amazing. They actually traveled by boat down the Amazon jungle basin uh, to reach these very indigenous tribes with no contact with the outside world. And there they catechize the people. For those that are Catholic, they bring the Eucharist. And these uh, tribes have very little access to the sacraments um, and also provide food and nourishment. It's a really beautiful story. Also in Rio de Janeiro, we chronicled their work with uh, the drug addicts and crackland crack outside of Rio de Janeiro. Very inspiring work. So we'll have a theatrical release in Brazil as well in November. And we're working on more than 20 foreign language versions. So we want to get this film uh, as widely distributed as possible in the coming months. So we're very excited. Um, we think Mother Teresa is a saint for our time. And we think this is a real timely story that could touch people's lives. I think, I think this film really presents not only the life of Mother Teresa, but this is really a tool for evangelization in so many ways. Because when you see the work of the missionaries of charity and when you hear the words of Mother Teresa, we hunted through archives around the world to find uh, forgotten, little-known interviews she did. And so there's a lot of the words of Mother Teresa in this film. Um, it's a great source of evangelization and the presentation uh, of the gospel in a very powerful visceral way. Yeah, you know, uh, a lot of us uh, will watch this a time or two and, uh, you know, recommend it to our friends and family, but you are, needless to say, really, really involved in this film, and I just wonder how it has transformed you personally to have done all the research, the travel, the the footage, you know, interviews. Were there, were there parts of it that really touched you personally, and how has it changed you, the, you know, being the director and the producer yeah. of this movie? No, oh, absolutely. It did. It did. Um, one of the things I learned when I first started delving, delving into this project is I obviously read a lot about <clears throat> the first film that launched Mother Teresa to fame. And I do think it's kind of ironic and an interesting little twist that it was a documentary film, uh, Something for Beautiful for God by Malcolm Muggeridge, that really launched Mother Teresa into worldwide fame. And so one, one of my hopes is that this film could help uh, reignite a new passion, a new interest in Mother Teresa. Um, so that's one thing that, that struck me. Um, when I read about Malcolm Muggeridge, I read that uh, frequently he, had, he would have to walk away during the filming uh, when he would see Mother Teresa taking care of a young child or taking, watching her pull the maggots out of the body of a dying person or tenderly wash somebody with leprosy. He would go so overcome by emotion. And I must say I experienced that as well. In some of the places I traveled to, I, was, I had the chance to be there in Brazil. And when you see the work of the missionaries of charity, just the selflessness, um, the love, um, that they do carrying out these acts that, you know, are very, very difficult, serving the poorest of the poor and the darkest holes of, of, the, of, of the world, it touches you. It really does. It really touches you. So there's a lot of moments where I was overcome by emotion and, and, and very deeply moved, and, and that's why I feel like this film is, has the potential to transform hearts because the visuals really convey a lot of power. And then one way I think intellectually in my own faith life, <clears throat> Mother Teresa inspired me, is because I, um, I'm of the conviction that a lot of the issues we're experiencing and divisions in the church and in society are come down to where people stand on that line, where on one end it's truth, um, on the other end it's love, on one end it's justice, on the other end it's mercy. 
Um, and so you could, in, a, in, in an effort to be very merciful and very loving, you can give up the church's moral teachings that must be upheld. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of it, you can be so focused on the truth and on justice that you can kind of forget a little bit about the importance of being merciful and being loving. I think in Mother Teresa, we see the perfect blend of the two of them, the way Christ wants us to incorporate those elements in our life, justice and truth, love and mercy. Yeah, um, yeah, she that stood is, up yeah. there in 1979 when she got the Nobel Peace Prize and with tremendous courage condemned abortion in front of all the global elite. <laughs> she said, I think the poorest nations are those who legalize abortion. By the same token, in her interpersonal relationships with people, and we have many testimonials in the film of people whose lives were transformed and touched by her, she was completely non-judgmental. It was this complete flow of God's love and mercy that emerged from her and that touched people's lives. So I think that's one way this movie, making this film, touched me is to try to seek to find that, that, that balance, just like Mother Teresa taught us. Uh, yeah, that, that's so well said. I've, I've often said, you know, Catholics are not liberal, we're not conservative, we're Catholic, and uh, I like to use the example of her for that exact reason. Uh, and you, you, you exp- expressed it so well, and I, I really appreciate that, because it's so true, and I think that's what we need, because it is a very polarized uh, society that we live in, as, as you explained. Um, just yeah. uh, don't have a lot of time, but... Uh, uh, is the relationship we, between Mother Teresa and John Paul II highlighted in the film? Because I know they had a very close relationship, didn't they? They did, yes. And we do, we do explore it. Uh, in fact, we interviewed uh, George Weigel, of course, the famous biographer of John Paul II. And one of the things he said was when he talked to John Paul about Mother Teresa, John Paul says, we didn't need a lot of words. We didn't need a lot of words. And I thought that was quite interesting as a little statement. And and what Weigel said essentially is because these are two people that had such a, had such a deep connection. Their lives were both forged by suffering. We know about John Paul II losing his mother, then losing his brother, then losing his father, his country invaded by the Nazis, his country invaded by the Soviet Union, forged under this crucible of the Second World War and the suffering under communism, totalitarianism. Then you have Mother Teresa and all the suffering she went through, this absence of God, physical hardships, health issues. Um, both of, but out of, both of them emerged from that suffering with this indomitable spirit and this incredible spirituality and closeness with our Lord and this courage. Um, and John Paul II would say to Mother Teresa, you go where I cannot go. And he was the one who sent her all around the world as his emissary. Um, and he saw her as a, as a living witness and embodiment of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, uh, and wanted her to present what the church really was. So in the film, we do talk about her work with John Paul II, the very close relationship they had, um, and yeah, obviously two of the most inspiring figures in recent church history. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, Dave, we're just about out of time. I, I thank you so much. I can, I can just tell the enthusiasm and excitement you have, uh, not only for this project, but uh, for this great saint. And uh, I, I personally am very eager to uh, see it. And I just encourage everybody listening right now to uh, go to the website, MotherTeresaMovie.com. As David said, uh, no H in Teresa, T-E-R-E-S-A, uh, MotherTeresaMovie.com, and get your tickets for the showing of Mother Teresa, No Greater Love, Monday, October 3rd, Tuesday, October 4th. Uh, you can also see a trailer uh, of the movie as well. And, um, and uh, David Naglieri is the director and producer of the movie. And uh, any, any other quick words of encouragement for folks? Anything else?
Thanks for listening to KATH 910 AM, Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth. Catholic radio for your soul on the Guadalupe Radio Network in North Texas. Heard also at grnonline.com and on your smartphone. 